my job is to take a two-year book project and condense it into five minutes. So, yikes. Here's how I'm going to do it. <laughs> I'm going to talk close to the mic. Um, I'm going to take two minutes saying how I got into this project. Um, it goes back to a previous book called The Bee Eater, which was about Michelle Rhee's time as chancellor of D.C. public schools. I thought at the time that this was the last best chance to turn around a troubled urban school district, and I wanted to be a witness there. Well, about halfway through my book project, it was clear that she was going to get the boot uh, because the mayor lost re-election. Uh, and that meant my book project had to be moved up by eight months, but more importantly, it meant that I had to take, I had to relook at how urban education was going to improve. And so I decided to take a look at what charters were doing. And as a narrative vehicle, I chose rocket ship charters out of San Jose, California, a small group with a really interesting academic uh, program, and they had really outsized ambitions. They decided that they could expand so fast in California and nationally that they could personally make a huge dent in our national achievement gaps. So could they? Well, about halfway through that project, <laughs> the wheels started coming off. And it was clear that they were not going to do that. But it was interesting because it was clear to me that there are no big rocket ship-like solutions to our K-12 challenges. And so, but it's something interesting happened going through that process. I decided to take a broader look at the charters, especially the promise that they made to parents, uh, in which they said, in convincing them to send their children to charters, if you, you do trust us with your kids, they'll be more likely to enroll in college and more likely to graduate. Was it true? Well, I, turned, I picked a good time to take a look at this because you can only gauge this six years out, and that's about the time I started looking at it. So what did I find? Well, at first, they stumbled. It's a tough thing to do. They were better, but not that much better. But they kept trying. They kept reinventing, uh, trying new strategies, and today, these charter networks, which are our major cities, their alumni are earning bachelor's degrees at rates between two and four times greater. And this was clearly bookworthy. So now, for the next two minutes, I'm going to tell you what's in the book. Um, as soon as I started researching the book, I realized that there's more than char there's charters going on in, upper, in higher education surrounding first-generation first students. Um, there were, and I settled on three things. One, the charters, what they learned about college success. Number two, the proliferation of college advising groups. These are independent groups uh, funded by foundations that send uh, highly trained counselors into high need high schools. So how does this look? You might have a kid who comes to you and says, look, you know, talk this over with my parents. I have to live at home. I have to keep working. I have to go to one of these commuter universities nearby. So the counselor might say, okay, fine, I get it. This is what you and your family want. Go to this one where you've got a 50% chance of earning a degree. Don't go to the one that you just mentioned where there's a 20% chance. Now, in the book, I profile College Advising Corps, but there are lots doing this, and it's, I'm very optimistic about what I'm seeing. The third is that colleges and universities are getting a lot better at admitting first-generation students and seeing that they succeed. And frankly, I think the best programs, the best initiatives come out of the Aspen Institute. And Dan can talk about this later. But in short, you've got elite universities opening up more seats to first-generation students. And you've got all colleges and universities a lot more open to taking community college transfers. And that latter one could be transformational. I mean, we're talking about huge numbers here. So that, to me, is the breakthrough. Now in my final hurried minute, I'm going to make a case for why I think this can expand. Um, and I don't want you to think I'm naive. <laughs> I interviewed a lot of students for this, and I have a sense of the challenge. I'll, I'll share just one. Uh, Siobhan Boone, who grew up in rural, very rural North Carolina, great student, got a full ride at the University of Pennsylvania. She described what life was like for her there. Uh, just give an example of the assigned study groups. They would wrap up, and then somebody would say, let's go to downtown Philly and have dinner. In some cases, these are restaurants that didn't even list the prices. Siobhan would always have to come up with an excuse why she couldn't go. 
And then finally, somebody said, hey, why don't you have your mother, you know, wire you some money? And, you know, she thought to herself, you know, I'm working two campus jobs to send money back to my mother. So I realize how difficult this is, but why am I still optimistic? Because these three legs that I just described, two of the three legs are not controversial. Um, the college advising, it's well-funded, and it's not controversial. What Dan and others are working on about improving, you know, the, uh, the number of first-gen students uh, admitted and getting through, it's not controversial. It's still going on. So that only leaves the charters is the obviously controversial part. Um, the progressive left has clearly moved against charters. And what does that mean? It, it means that we're likely to see a slowdown, uh, moratoriums. Why does this not concern me? Because charters were never going to solve this on their own. They're like 6 7% of the population. Where they're going to have an impact is when they can collaborate with traditional school districts around college success. Now, you're probably asking yourself, why would they do that? Why would they collaborate with a competitor? Because it's a win-win for them. They don't lose any students. We're talking about graduates here. And they're more likely to attract funding from outsiders, which is exactly what happened in San Antonio with the collaboration there. So that's it. That's my case for the breakthrough and why it can expand my book in five minutes. Thank you. <laughs> okay, I'm David Brooks. Um, one of the things I like about Richard's book is it's very optimistic. Uh, so I want to screw that up right now. <laughs> I mean, just two statistics from Richard's book that I took out of this. The first, uh, the National Center for Educa Education Statistic took a 2002 cohort and tried to figure out how many of them would complete college in 10 years. Of the highest 25% kids' economic income, only 46% graduated. Everybody goes to college, they think they're going to graduate. Only 46% of the most privileged kids graduate? Kind of pathetic. The worst news is that among those <coughs> in the lowest quartile, it's 14.6%. So that's pretty pathetic, too. And so this is a completion challenge that I don't think we've focused on enough. So I just want to dump that bit of bad news on us. OK, we're done. We can all go. Um, <laughs> now I'm joined by a very esteemed panel. Uh, Janet Napolitano now runs the uh, chancellor of the University of California system. She was former governor of Arizona, former secretary of Homeland Security. Janice Jackson has spent her entire career in the Chicago public schools, risen from the bottom to the top, as we say. Yeah. She now runs Chicago public schools. Dan Porterfield, my boss. Uh, runs the Aspen Institute and was formerly president of Franklin and Marshall College. So let me start with uh, Dan. Uh, you were at Franklin and Marshall. You faced this problem. What'd you do? Yep. So um, first, thanks to all who are here and to the Walton Family Foundation for uh, sponsoring. And this is a pretty cool panel. I'm delighted to be with you. Um, I became president of Franklin and Marshall College in 2011. And um, we tripled our funding for need-based financial aid very quickly. And with that tripling of the aid, we then built pipelines into schools and communities, access programs, where low and moderate income students were being very well served. A number of them were charter schools, and a number of those that we worked with are featured in Richard's book. And full disclosure, I wrote the introduction. Um, and uh, we built these pipelines. And we developed a theory of talent for what we thought was relevant and important for a first-gen college student, and for that matter, any student, to succeed in a highly rigorous, highly engaging liberal arts environment with small classes, research opportunities, and tons of activities. And you really want students in the driver's seat, not the passenger seat at that kind of school. Um, and very quickly, uh, the strategy worked. When we, we tripled our aid budget, and thus we tripled low-income students, we tripled immigrants, we tripled rural low-income students, we tripled African-American Latino students. And it was amazing how fast the data came in. People talk about the six-year graduation rate, but honestly, I didn't have six years to wait. Um, and so at the end of the second year, I had a big faculty meeting and showed the faculty the retention rates and the grades of the first-gen and low-income students. And our retention rate for the first-gen students was 98%, two students left uh, from the sophomore class. Um, everything kept going. Everything kept getting better. The students graduated who were low-income at or above the school uh, right as a whole. Um, we, want, we started winning more prestigious honors for the school, Fulbrights, Marshalls, et cetera. Um, pretty cool to see our application shot up. The all-time high a year or two before I had become president was 5,600 applications. This year, Franklin and Marshall had 9,500. Uh, 
people started to give money for financial aid, attracted to the idea that we could find uh, support and launch first-gen students into transformational lives. And the really exciting thing about this is it has absolutely no partisan dimension to it whatsoever. It was framed as talent. And I want to emphasize, it was framed as talent, even though we value diversity, because every single student was recruited for his or her talent. And if the faculty were looking at a classroom that now maybe had a third of the students who were uh, students of color, as opposed to before maybe 10%, I wanted the faculty to really understand that these kids were here because of their talent. And that made a big difference. It put the onus on the faculty to think, how do I reach these kids in such a way that I can draw out the greatness that's inside of them? Um, I won't go into the next detail at all, except to say that that worked so well that we went to Bloomberg Philanthropy and asked them to work with us on a scaling model. Now, we couldn't turn, Aspen in, I mean, we couldn't turn uh, Franklin and Marshall into University of California system, and this actually is the system that does this the best, I think, of all the public systems. But what we could do is create a network of fellow travelers of other schools that also wanted to increase enrollment of low-income students and see high graduation rates and student success as a result. And we picked the Aspen Institute and the College Excellence Program led by Josh Weiner, who's here, to steward the development of this affinity group of 120 top schools, the whole Ivy League, half the public flagships, Caltech, MIT, schools like that. And we've together set a national goal, together, competing together of 50,000 more Pell Grant or just above Pell Grant students in our, collectively in our schools by the year 2025. It's called the American Talent Initiative. We're much more diverse, diverse in talent. And the last point to make, in two years, that coalition, the University of uh, California is a big part of that coalition. Um, Chicago Public Schools is a big part of that coalition because you're feeding kids into these schools. Uh, we've increased in two years low-income students in these top schools 7,291, which is the equivalent of creating a new Duke University, all full of low-income students in two years. So I say that because we, can prove the, we have to prove the possible. Some of the stats are negative, but what are we going to do? Admit failure and go home and do something else? No, we have to invest in efforts that will get talented students the opportunities they've earned. Yeah, let me, uh, you're my boss, I'll pose a tough question. <laughs> One, uh, are you cream skimming? These are pretty elite schools that you have in the network. Yeah. Uh, second, uh, are you focusing on completion? Yeah. What are the completion rates that we've got to keep focused, not just getting kids into schools? Oh, I've got, two, I've, got, I've got two data answers on that. Okay, and then the final thing is, when you find kids that, that need help to complete, is it financial, is it academic readiness, is it just life is messy? Yeah. What, how do we think about the yes, causes? Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, exactly, yeah. it's all that. Yeah, and more. So this isn't solving every problem. That's point, you know, that's point one, this is one problem. The, the problem, though, is that high-talent, low-income students are underrepresented in schools where the graduation rates are high. That's one problem, that's right. not the only problem. And Josh Weiner, who's here, did a report that was really compelling that showed that when you enroll low-income students in any schools with high graduation rates, they graduate at the same level, same rate, as the upper-income students. The problem of completion is not a problem at the, uh, at the highly selective schools. There's so much financial aid, there's so many resources to support students. What we need to do is make sure that those top schools aren't somehow blind to talent and inadvertently contributing to a caste system where kids that have earned it from urban and rural communities don't get in, when if they did get in, they would achieve at the same high level. The economist Raj Chetty is coming out with research that's gonna double down on the, what Josh proved. That's point one. Point two, um, we've increased the enrollment, so it's not skimming, um, although there's more talent to get. Um, but, but the great thing to see is that there's so much talent in our country, in every, every place, we have to look more. And then the, um, uh, what was the last question you asked was, um, the cause will offer. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So that, uh, th I'll, I'll say something slightly provocative. Um, so it's important to respond to the whole student. That's not provocative. Um, it's important to uh, design, uh, grease the gears of the schools so that it's responsive to first-gen students. That's not controversial. But what I want to say is controversial is that actually give them financial aid, give them critical mass, that will largely get the job done. First-gen kids are not precious pieces of pottery that have to be kept in the cupboard and protected from everyday use. 
And so there's, a, there's an element of this that actually is problematic when, school, when school, people who run schools like mine try to show how compassionate and liberal they are by saying they put in place every possible support that a student could need. I say give them financial aid and give them friends from backgrounds like theirs with faculty who engage them, and a lot of it will take care of itself. Not everything, of course. And upper-income kids need many of those same supports, too. Okay, interesting. Yeah. Janet, let me turn to you. Um, UC system is uh, first describe what you're doing to get kids to complete, and especially how you're transitioning kids from community college to your four-year schools. Yeah, so the UC system is 10 campuses, nine take undergraduates. Uh, um, uh, it's a research university. 42% um, uh, of our undergraduates are the first in their families to go to college. 38% uh, are Pell Grant students, and uh, they have a six-year graduation rate north of 80%. Um, uh, for California resident students who um, come from families less than 80, who make an income less than 80,000 a year, they pay no tuition or fees at the University of California, and they graduate. So I want to echo Dan's point about uh, you know having robust financial aid. Uh, makes a difference if, if a student doesn't have to work two jobs, uh, if, uh, if when they're work they can work fewer than 20 hours a week, that has a real, uh, uh, diff makes a difference on the educational outcome. And in terms of where do we get our students from, uh, uh, we have put a real emphasis on transfers from our community colleges. Um, uh, so that now 30% of our undergraduates are actually uh, community college transfers. And one of the ways uh, we did that was we created 21 different pathways, diff 21 different majors, um, where if a student completes those courses in community college, they will transfer to any of our nine undergraduate schools um, and the, the student will really start as a true junior. Um, so uh, the next part of our transfer initiative is we're implementing an actual transfer guarantee. Um, so for students who complete a pathway, um, who get uh, uh, the requisite GPA, they will be um, given a guarantee of admission to the University of California. So um, a lot going on there, but that, that's a, a, yeah. a little bit of an overview. So um, are, are we looking at two unrepresentative institutions? I mean, the statistics are bad nationally. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's, every time I go to California here, it's super tough to get into the Cal, any of the Cal schools. Yeah, it is. So, uh, we had 220,000 applications last year. Um, <laughs> Uh, and uh, yes, yeah, so so it it, it is tough. Um, uh, you know, one of the reasons is uh, that the creation of new campuses hasn't been commensurate with the growth in population in California. Uh, but we are able to um, offer a seat to every eligible California high school graduate who comes from the top uh, 9% of their class. Are there other schools that aren't taking community college kids? I think I read in Richard's book, like Princeton one. Princeton takes 13. <laughs> and <I'm> like, <laughs> so. <laughs> I mean, I'm sorry. They, I mean, they had this huge announcement, and, and I love Princeton, but whatever. <laughs> they're, they're taking transfer students. Uh, they took 13. <laughs> it was like, okay. <laughs> but I, I would say it was their first time doing that, uh, and they also took veterans too. And you know, we need to move everybody along. Um, but we're following we're following Janice's lead for sure. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> let me turn to Janice. Yeah. You first, congratulations. You your school system has had one of the greatest gains of any city in America. Mm -hmm. So that should be Thank noted. But now you're doing K through 12, and presumably you got enough on your hands. Yeah. <laughs> Why do you have to worry about this problem? Well, a, a couple things. First, I want to uh, extend uh, my gratitude for to the Walton Foundation for allowing me to be on this panel. I think my personal and professional experience in CPS kind of paints a picture that helps us to all explain um, how we can address this issue and also gives me the same optimism that Richard has that these problems aren't intractable, but they are difficult to unpack. So uh, in 1980, I started in Chicago public schools and preschool. And my experience was one where 
early on, I was identified as a student that had talent. And therefore, experiences were offered, opportunities were abound, and my educational pathway was curated by a bunch of caring people who uh, made sure I was okay. With that said, as inspirational as that story is, it's the stuff that Hollywood movies are made of, it doesn't change the numbers that you talked about earlier today. And so in my place now, um, because of those opportunities, I really believe in the old adage that talent is evenly distributed and um, opportunity is not. How does a large school system like Chicago, the third largest school district serving over 360,000 students, create structural change, systemic policies and procedures that allow for more students to have these opportunities and not those individual students who represent, you know, Things, things that will be successful no matter what. So there are three big things that I think CPS has done. First, it is um, a, a traditional school system, but we're not a K-12 system. We actually believe in getting our students in school earlier and keeping them there longer. So under our former mayor's leadership, and it's now being extended with under the new leadership, there's a huge initiative to get students, especially low-income students, in preschool um, and universal pre-k is a huge initiative one that I personally benefited from and now thousands of students in CPS benefit from that and not just because somebody told them about it in the grocery store second the community college system keeping our students in school longer and allowing them an opportunity to access post-secondary opportunities um, at a cost that's reasonable and isn't um, a huge barrier has led to us addressing the issues that you pointed out earlier. Um, in CPS, uh, in 2008, the University of Chicago published the Pajos Report that um, the data was actually more abysmal than you pointed out. Only 8% of our graduates uh, completed college by the age of 26. We have more than doubled that in the last 10 years. Now we're close to 18%, so exceeding the number for low income and minority students, as you pointed out, but still not where we need to be. So we're doing a few things. First, changing our policies, ensuring that all students take standardized assessments as a matter of uh, course in the requirement for graduation. A lot of people were opposed to that, but it, they thought that it would A, bring down the average score. In the district, it did, and the scores continue to rise. But what we were able to identify is that there are far more students who are college ready than we thought before, just because they were being selected in other ways. We also have a policy which we announced a couple of years ago, Learn, Plan, Succeed, where every single graduate leaves with a post-secondary plan. And again, we were criticized for pushing middle-class values on all of our students in the system, and we were unapologetic about that. The conversations that our counselors are having with our students are the same conversations that we all have at the table, dinner table every night with our children, and students throughout our city should have the same access. And then the third piece I would say is a really strong partnership with the university like uh, University of Chicago, where they have unfettered, and don't flinch the researchers, well the researchers in the room might salivate, the school yeah. <laughs> people might uh, flinch. They have unfettered access to raw data around um, student performance of the kids in Chicago. And some people were, are fearful of that. It's a, a dec, uh, two decades long partnership. But what it has led to is that they were able to uncover trends and findings that would have otherwise not been apparent to us that have led to the policy changes that I spoke about earlier. So as a result, we see more kids graduating. We see more kids transitioning into two and four year universities. And we've seen our completion rate more than double in just a decade. Again, we haven't um, broken through uh, the national average. We're working on that. But I think the fact that we've been able to more than double that number in just 10 years is something remarkable and gives me a lot of hope and hopefully a lot of hope for other large urban school districts dealing with these issues. Okay, so say I'm a high school junior or senior, now no, nobody in my family's ever been to college. Mm -hmm. What is, what's happening to me in your schools? Yeah, a few things. Um, from the onset, um, and we've, we've also leveraged technology. I should have talked about that. So we use an online system called Naviant, um, and right now it's 9 through 12. Um, we continue to have a goal to push that down to middle school. We haven't done that yet. But immediately when our students come in, our counselors have been trained through support of the uh, post-secondary institutions in the city. They've been trained to first uh, do you know your run-of-the-mill interest survey for students. Um, but 
but we start talking to them about college, college match, college uh, completion at the very beginning. We also, uh, this year, uh, introduced something called a spotlight report that our students receive every semester. And essentially what they receive is a report that looks at not just your um, standardized test scores, because those of you in this room who work in on college admissions knows that it's more than that. They look at the courses that they take. We're giving them much more access to advanced placement courses, as well as dual credit courses at our um, community colleges, as well as some of the local four-year universities. So students at the very beginning are having to identify what their post-secondary plan is. And at each interval um, at the end of the semester, they're meeting with their guidance counselors to have conversations around what the next steps are. And of course, as you can imagine, that changes every single day with the average 14 or 15-year-old. But what's different, um, different than what I experienced coming up through CPS, is that there is a um, process that has been uh, routinized where students are sitting down talking to an adult who <coughs> understands this work that is asking them the right questions and pushing them in the right direction. CPS has always had some of the best selective enrollment schools in the country. They are acknowledged in every report. The only reason we're able to boast the um, the progress that I'm here, that I'm talking about today, is because now we're seeing that progress happening in our neighborhood schools, in our schools that don't have a selective criteria or selective program. So I would uh, attribute a lot of it to the amazing counseling that's happening in our district. And that would not be possible without um, generous support from the philanthropic community that has rallied around this issue around post secondary um, education in CPS for probably 15 years. So this is not a new phenomenon. We're just now seeing the results. <laughs> of all of that work. Okay. Let me ask for the three of you about the college match question. Uh, I'm part of a community in DC, a bunch of kids, and one of the young women came up to me, her dad, their immigrant kid, her dad had been deported four times, and should she go to college? I said, yeah, you're a very smart young woman, you should go to college. So she looked in a college, and she barely got through high school. She looked in a college booklet, she liked Pomona. Yeah. Pomona's the fourth most selective school among the small liberal arts. I really didn't know what to say. Yeah. I didn't know how to address that. So how do we think about college match? I assume it, you can pick the wrong two college because it's too, too demanding. I assume you can pick the wrong college because their completion rates at this university are 20%. Yeah. So the norm is they don't complete, so it must be contagious. So for any of you, how do you think about that question? Well, I have, I have like a second PhD in counseling 11th and 12th graders about this process because <laughs> my children have introduced me to all their friends and I go to all these different schools and make friends with teachers and I meet their kids and so I've always got a caseload of people I'm talking to. <laughs> Nobody pays me a penny or pays the schools a penny. Um, and I, I always say that um, a couple different things, but first of all, you know, get out, visit, look at places, talk to friends that are, and pe peers that are at those schools. Um, I always emphasize that you can learn a lot about a school by going online, looking through the programs, who are the faculty. But the big thing I emphasize, the single biggest thing at the, at the individual level is you have the power to create the education you seek. No one can give you an education. You get it, you earn it by meeting the faculty, by getting involved in clubs and activities, by pushing into research, by attending campus lectures, by going to the career center, meeting alums in the areas that interest you. It is impossible to hand or buy someone education. And on that thesis, I then say, you know, if you don't get into Pomona, tough. That should be a BB off your battleship. You can go to almost any school with resources and with your grit, go get a great education because yeah. you create it. And I think that's an important message for all of our kids. Yeah. What about the problem of the schools that there are so many schools where the completion rate is 20%? Yeah. Uh, should we just steer kids away from them? Yes. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, I, I, and I, I, uh, I want to echo the importance of advising. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, I think that's one of the role of advisors is to help students cut through the clutter yeah. and be uh, informed consumers of this, uh, and their parents to be informed consumers of, of this um, educational journey that they are going to embark upon. Um, uh, and I, you know, I think it, as part of that, um, uh, the issue of undermatching should mm -hmm. be addressed. Um, uh, students, um, you know, some some, some uh, uh, student will will say, you know, I can't get in, or you know, or it's too expensive. That's the that's the two things mm -hmm. we hear. Um, and on the I can't get in, if if you're in in the zone. You don't know unless you unless you apply. And on affordability, you know, yeah. all of that 
information is is available, but um, it's not easily understandable. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think we need to do a better job of uh, communicating um, that part. Uh, but um, you know, uh, there, the higher education environment in the United States has a lot of different institutions. Most of them are quite good, um, uh, but there's no reason uh, a student should should go to a place where the graduation rate is 20%. Yeah. Yeah. Now let, let's talk about the charter schools. Um, the, one of the findings in the book is that there are some charter school networks that are doing a really good job of this. I, I've watched KIPP, as Richard had over the years, they thought they were doing awesome and their kids were not completing, and so KIPP has adjusted. Now, you used to be a Democratic politician. Uh, <laughs> charter schools are not in good favor in the Democratic Party. How, and Chicago's had the challenges. Yeah. Uh, how should we think about charter schools, especially the ones who are seem to be doing an excellent job at this? I mean, for us, um, and as was pointed out in the book, we have um, one of the most successful high school charter networks in Chicago, Noble um, Charter Schools. And so um, the political climate has definitely changed, and I think it's something that um, folks, uh, proponents of charter schools, definitely are paying attention to and have to continue to pay attention to in order to evolve and figure out um, where they live in this space. As a leader of a school system, um, and I've said this time and time again, I'm pro-choice. I don't believe charters are uh, a panacea, but I also think that there is space for um, competition in our schools. I think about my parents who didn't know what, they didn't articulate it as choice, but definitely um, sought out better opportunities for me and my four siblings. And I don't think that that's something that should be reserved for just the middle class or the upper class. I think the fact that there, there are more opportunities um, led to a lot of needed change, in particular in CPS. With that said, I think we gotta get back to what the um, origin and genesis of was for charter schools, which was to be an incubator and a space for innovation and the, you know, uh, the ability to innovate faster than a large um, bureaucracy. And I think that this college completion work that has been examined is one example that we need to continue to amplify because a lot of the work that we saw happening in our charter schools, we were able to bring some of those practices and policies over to the school system and, and Obviously, there's more scale there and more opportunity, um, but there's also been collaboration where charters have benefited from the work that's happening in the district. And one example that's um, underway now in CPS is the push for dual enrollment um, and dual credit. Um, this is a place where our charters were kind of behind, um, but they are starting to catch up because to one, one of you raised a point earlier about completion. We set a goal that 50% of our kids would have um, a college credential before they graduate uh, by 2019. And um, the last data, we were at 47%. We'll have our data for this current school year, so we hope to meet that goal. But it really was around a few things. Number one, making sure that students understand that college um, is a reality for them. Um, to help with the cost. In some cases, they go in with a few credits. I had a student come to the board meeting the other day, and you know he was phenomenal and had all great things to say, but he said, you know what it felt like to look at that you know, transcript and see that you already have credit. But I think the other piece, and we haven't talked about this a lot today, is the um, social emotional piece. And like these, we're talking about humans. And if you go into a space where you don't know whether or not you're supposed to be there, you have these feelings of imposter syndrome, it's not organized for you. You don't see people like you represented in the faculty and other places. Those problems are real issues, and it's not always academic preparedness and finances that make people come back. Sometimes people are just, quite frankly, uncomfortable. So I think the K-12 system, it's our job to make sure that they are better prepared academically, and we're uh, doing a lot around that. But we also spend just as much time making sure that they understand the world that they are entering and how to navigate that, not if, but when they uh, meet challenges. Yeah, let me... Um so, uh, you know, I think there's uh, this dichotomy developing that um, if you support charters, you don't support public schools. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I think that dichotomy has developed in part because in some states, um, yeah. uh, they've put additional money in, mm -hmm. into charters and have been pretty thin on, on, on the publics. And, and so there's this tension yeah. that's developed. Uh, so I think we have to acknowledge that. Um, uh, I look at charters very much mm -hmm. the same way you do, that, that they are uh, a, 
a supplement, mm -hmm. not a replacement yeah. for our overall public education system. They are a test bed for innovation. Um, I do think one of the key uh, challenges is how do you take something that's worked in a charter mm -hmm. uh, with a small population and, and uh, um, you know, uh, pretty good yeah. student-teacher ratio, et cetera, and scale it. Um, and that's, that's the, the challenge, challenge you yeah. have. Yeah. Uh, and and, and uh, I don't think we've, um, uh, I don't think we've solved that puzzle yeah. yet. I have, the, have had the privilege of going around the country and visiting so many schools and programs of all types. And I've been in many KIPP schools, Uncommon schools, um, Achievement First schools on the East Coast, Noble, I've been there. Uh, uh, Green Dot on the, on the West Coast, I've been to Yes Prep. Uh, and idea schools in Texas. Um, I've been to Washington Latin in DC. Uh, those schools, they are awesome. I would send my children to any of those schools. Um, the school leaders have control. The teachers are motivated and compensated. Uh, the parents are bought in and the results are there. That does, doesn't mean that's a better, doesn't mean we shouldn't have strong district schools. I support everything. But I'm not gonna deny what my eyes have seen, yeah. which is I've seen parents counting on these schools and the schools deliver it. And what bothers me about the political debate today is now we're talking too much about the, the, the model favored by people that are not educators as opposed to really listening to the educators and the parents who are relying on public charter schools and other forms of education to serve their children. And I'm very grateful to the charter school movement, even if there have been some charter schools that have been lousy, mm -hmm. because they're proving the possible. Now, we have sort of three good news stories up here, mostly because we don't invite the, whatever, the <laughs> chancellor of the University of Northern Tulsa to come here and say, why do you have a 15% completion rate? Uh, it's, yeah, it's not polite. <laughs> but there's, we're still failing. I mean, they, yeah. people yeah. make this point that of the 100 who go to school, some minute percent do what yeah. we yeah. think they should do, which is graduate. Mm -hmm. And so I just want to ask you if you were on the verge of some massive disruption of higher ed. Yeah. I, I spent a couple of days at Arizona State recently, yeah. and Michael Crow says, you know, he's in the business of trying to disrupt higher ed, and one of the points he makes is all the other schools get prestige by excluding people, I get prestige by including people, and so he's got this massive school. His honors college is bigger than Stanford. Yeah. Uh, he graduates more Jews than Brandeis, and more Muslims than Jews. <laughs> it's, everything's on a gigantic scale out yeah. there. So do you think we're in the on the verge of some major disruption that will affect this problem? Well, I, I, I'll take a shot, although I think, Janet, you might have the best view. Um, the, I've been so impressed with a set of schools that don't have the highest graduation rates and aren't in the American Talent Initiative, but are serving an overwhelmingly low-income population and getting significant results. And so Georgia State is one, University of Central Florida, UMBC is another one, a private school like Trinity College in Washington, D.C. Um, and I've been impressed with community college, two-year colleges, like Miami-Dade or Indian River in Florida, uh, like Colorado Mountain College here. Um, so I don't know that we have to disrupt higher education so much as look at those that are succeeding in all the different types of schools and then double down our commitment to spread to other schools the positive practices that are making a difference. If you want to get inspired, go to Rutgers Newark where you know, they're widening the pipeline with their talent strategy, only the people they're widening it for are people that are opportunity youth and not in school or work, and they're getting the job done, too. So it's a big system, and there are a lot of success stories, and I think we need to focus on growing success by having some accountability not to fail. Yeah, so, you know, it's, it's interesting because, you know, I've been listening a little to the presidential campaign, um, <laughs> Just a and, little, and uh, you know, you know, all, all, all you hear from uh, the Democrats in terms of higher education is it costs too much and student debt is too high. Um, and acknowledge that 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 is a really important issue. What I would love to see is a a, a real discussion about how we educate more students to be prepared for mm -hmm. post-secondary uh, yeah. uh, education, to go to a school um, where they can expect to graduate and they, they do graduate, um, and that our financial aid model is designed to facilitate that, uh, and that we recognize that um, we have um, 
private post-secondary, but the vast majority of uh, students in post-secondary education are going to be at public institutions. Yeah. Yeah. And um, uh, what is we? What is our plan for supporting them moving forward? So, um, uh, and and uh, in connection with that, you know, an acknowledgement of why is this important? What is the value of uh, going to college? Why why should students have that expectation? Mm -hmm. yeah. mm -hmm. I, mean, I think yeah. precisely because there's so much value to going to college that we should actually think twice about free college and debt-free college because you earn a million dollars or more with a college degree. And I don't see why people that don't go to college should subsidize people going to college to then make more money than they're ever gonna make. I have no problem whatsoever with people being invested in their education. And I think, you know, I, it's, I think it's somewhat sad to hear these sweeping proposals that just say, let's wipe out all debt, let's make everything free, um, as if that's gonna actually fix the problem of quality that we're talking about. I'd rather invest our kids in excellent education, expect them to contribute something to it, a fair amount, not to be price gouged, and, and in return, invest more in the Pell Grant, much more, yeah. but also ex expect people to contribute, to pay it forward with their degree. No, I'm with you. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Somebody called yeah. Bernie Sanders. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and one more question, then we'll go to questions uh, from the floor. Mm -hmm. um, and you had mentioned the social and emotional piece. Mm -hmm. Uh, the statistics are horrible. Teenage suicide rates are up 70% since yeah. 2011. Depression rates are up. Mental health facilities at every college I visited are swamped. Mm -hmm. uh, what's the piece of that in this story? And what can be done? I mean, I really don't understand why depression rates are, are suddenly up so much, but mm -hmm. they are. Well, I think there are a lot of um, uh, hypotheses around that. Um, as, as far as it, it relates to um, students, teenagers in particular, being under pressure about what happens once they graduate. I think that uh, schools as well as adults and families have a lot to do with that. Um, I think that we have become, and we talked, you talked a little bit about this on your panel earlier, um, but we've become obsessed with the same group of schools. And I think that, and, and we see this play out in the public school system. Everybody talks about the same five high schools as if we don't have other quality schools. And I think this, the advising piece the college match um, uh, uh, piece is extremely important, but I just think as a society, we spend too much time paying attention to um, the same group of schools, and we're not thinking about the impact that that has on the children who are being set up um, for failure, not because they weren't successful or they don't have a certain level of competency, but because the numbers just don't make sense. I don't care how successful you are, you get 220,000 applications, everybody can't get in. And so I think the more um, we lift up both public and private institutions that are offering a quality education, the more we share data about what's actually happening in those schools, I think we'll be more surprised and hopefully people will see that there are more opportunities and options out there and that should lessen some of the pressure on our children. I mean, kids are over-programmed. They are worrying about things that they should not be worried about um, at an early age. And I think that um, the numbers around depression are, are, can be attributed to that. The last thing I'll say is just that um, making sure that colleges or what, wherever students land, that they are um, places that are good for people at that point in their uh, development is extremely important. I've seen far too many students, not just because of race or class or some of the other differences that they meet, but just the support for mental health, the support for anxiety, the support for um, just being overworked and overtaxed isn't really there. Our, our post-secondary system is still a system where people sink or swim. And I think that the more the K-12 system provides that support, if they are not met with that same level of support when they transition, it can be really tough for them. And for many of these kids, it's the first time that they have experienced failure. So imagine what that's like. If you've been successful throughout school, you got into your school of choice or one of your uh, choice schools, and then you experience failure, that can be pretty dramatic for the average person. And so how do we support them um, you know, if, that if and when that happens? Yeah, this is a real conundrum uh, for us. And uh, uh, because the demand for mental health services um, has, has skyrocketed. Mm -hmm. um, and so, uh, you know, we uh, put half of the uh, uh, student fee into mental health mm -hmm. uh, uh, services, um, uh, increased the, the, the staffing. Um, uh, but uh, I think 
uh, to your point, uh, really with some intentionality, uh, focusing on the environment yeah. in which these students uh, are, are living. Um, uh, you know, have a robust financial aid program so they're not working two jobs and trying to go to, to school. Um, uh, you know, have uh, uh, peer support. Mm -hmm. um, uh, have some faculty opportunity support. where they can connect with a faculty mm -hmm. member, which um, I find that that connection is a secret sauce mm -hmm. for so many things. So um, I think it's a matter of funding for mental health services, but also really focused yeah. on that environment. Uh, colleges have done a lot. There's more to do. Um, I want to move it up earlier in the sort of the child's development. Um, the Aspen Institute just finished a big commission on social and emotional learning and its relationship mm -hmm. to academic learning. It's, it's online. Um, it's a multi-year effort. And uh, my colleague, Ross Wiener, who's in the back, was a big part of that. And you know, it's clear that we have to focus on enhancing social and emotional development yeah. from in the womb. Uh, we have day one on. It's a big, important theme. There's a lot to learn. A, the brain science all says engagement with babies of a human is critical. Kids grow up, this era, much more uh, engaged with social media or with, with technology. Yeah. Uh, we have to, I think we have to break that down a bit. And then one, one last point, and you know, David Brooks is my boss. Um, <laughs> <laughs> he's leading an effort called Weave through which he is bringing the resources of the Aspen Institute into communities around the country to find difference makers and change makers who are rejecting us versus them thinking in order to solve problems and build communities. And the critical insight that I've learned about many things I've learned from the Weaver Initiative, which you can learn about online too, is that we have to focus as a society on building healthful relationships, early and enduring and surrounding young people with advocates and supporters and champions who see them as an individual person and take away some of these external supposed validations of a human being, uh, whether it's an achievement ideology or, uh, or fitting into preconceived ideas of what you're supposed to do because of where you were born. And you've really opened the, a lot of people's eyes with your work on the critical function of developing real relationships with our young people. Yeah. Okay, let's open the floor to questions. All I ask is, the questions will all be about Kamala Harris's debate performance. <laughs> <laughs> let's start right in front here. <laughs> that was wow. Yeah. Um, so I've spent eight of my first non-professional years teaching senior high school mm -hmm. at-risk youth. Mm -hmm. And I think it's really important, although sobering, to kind of look at the um, statistics you're talking about, about who's not completing. Mm -hmm. And so while I agree that investment needs to be made into education, the disturbing trend I'm seeing, and I'm going to ask the question mm -hmm. to you, Ms. Jackson, it's kind of morally conflicting because mm -hmm. in our district, we kind of have this cheesy but nice concept where when kindergartners come into their public schools for the first day, they're adding uh, 16 to the year, so next mm -hmm. year in 2020. Yeah. Welcome graduates of 2036. Yeah. So, yep. so they're really encouraging this notion, right? Okay, but what I'm seeing a lot with my senior students in at-risk populations is that they are taking the financial risk, mm -hmm. but they're not making it. Mm -hmm. And some of these students are first generation, but some of these students are second generation in that their parents tried it yeah. and didn't oh. make it. Mm -hmm. Now they're trying it and they're not making it. What the disturbing trend that I'm seeing is I'm thinking about teaching their kids in 20 years who are going to be even more um, conflicted or more paranoid mm -hmm. of the system because even if you go to a state school in my state of Kentucky for one semester and then you say, I'm, I'm not gonna be able to do this, mm -hmm. you're five, six, eight, ten thousand dollars $10,000 in debt. Yeah. Without the degree, yeah. how, are, how are you to kind of navigate that, that repayment? And so my question is a question of moral confliction. Mm -hmm. um, as, as the CEO of such a large mm -hmm. district, do you ever, are you ever concerned that you are sending them into this difficult to navigate world, knowing that the numbers that aren't going to make it, where are you leaving them yeah. and future generations of kids that are going to come from those, uh, yeah. from those students? So the short answer is no. <laughs> 
Um, I'm never conflicted because the alternative is worse, just to be quite honest with you. And as somebody who um, was lucky enough to, you know, uh, advance and be socially, uh, you know, up, upward mobility, I should say, you know, I've experienced that. So I know the power there. And I still believe at my core, the same as I believe the first day that I started teaching that education is the single best way to eradicate poverty. I'm not going to move away from that. What I do think we have an obligation to do is to better advise our students. So one of the things that we're doing in Chicago for a number of reasons, um, but finances come into play uh, a great deal, based on your point, um, and, and I'm seeing more kids, it's not even five or $10,000 in debt. They pick the wrong school, they're coming out with $20,000 in debt, which is crazy. Um, and so we are utilizing our city colleges system, which has really done an amazing um, revamp. And the chancellor, Chancellor Salgado, was in here today and was on a panel earlier. Mm -hmm. um, the work we've been able to do there has been remarkable because it's much more accessible. Um, so it's not just accessible, but they've also worked to revamp the curriculum um, to enhance the quality and then to also work and have better handoffs with the four-year universities that they have articulation agreements with. So I think for me, um, the alternative is worse. I think sending kids out without some kind of credential, whether it's a degree or uh, a career and technical certificate, the, um, their earning power is diminished all out the gate. And so I think the risk there, um, out, I mean, the risk outweighs, you know, kind of what, I mean, the benefits outweigh the risk that you brought up because there are a lot of students who are able to be successful. I think the point that, that we have to consider is do we, do we need to direct them to places that are um, afford, more affordable? And I do think the college affordability debate is an important one to have. I mean, we, we've talked a lot in here about kids from the lowest um, socioeconomic status, but I'm more worried about like the parent you described or even the ones that did complete. More and more of our families, uh, you know, this is the first generation where kids are gonna make less than their parents or we're, maybe we're already in that generation, I'm not sure. But the point I'm making is if we don't do something about college affordability, we, we, we're gonna be in trouble as a society and that's what, that worries me more than, you know, sending kids off to college um, with the risk that they might not complete and would therefore be in debt. I would much rather them have college debt than the debt of like a car or something else that they don't need, so. Okay, so I um, screwed up. Uh, oh. I was looking at time cards thinking they were until audience questions, oh. but it was until the end of the session. <laughs> <laughs> so I apologize. Uh, maybe there'll be a little time you can talk to the panelists. For those of you who didn't have questions, you can take me out back and beat me. <laughs> uh, but uh, uh -oh. I apologize for that, but we are out of time. So thank oh. the panelists. Thank you.